This program's about the impossible. There's a good chance that you believe in the impossible. In 1967, Dr. George Wald won the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine. Dr. Wald said, When it comes to the origin of life, there are two possibilities, creation or spontaneous generation. There is no third way. Spontaneous generation was disproved 100 years ago, but that led us to only one other conclusion, that of supernatural creation. We cannot accept that on philosophical grounds. Therefore, we choose to believe the impossible, that life arose spontaneously by chance. This Nobel Prize-winning scientist rejected the science that God had to be the creator of life, the only possible explanation for you. Me, I'm a Christian because I don't believe in the impossible. Stay tuned and let's explore the universe as it really is. I'm Paul and this is C-Y-K-I-A-E. Louise Perry, young English feminist who published the book, Therefore, with the surprising title of The Case Against the Sexual Revolution, quotes the story that English philosopher, writer and Christian apologist G.K. Chesterton told. It goes like this and is entirely relevant to our modern tear-down culture, which includes the sexual revolution going back to the 1960s powered by the invention of the contraceptive pill and easy divorce. The story goes like this. In the matter of reforming things, as distinct from deforming them, there is one plain and simple principle, a principle which will probably be called a paradox. There exists in such a case a certain institution or law. Let us say, for the sake of simplicity, a fence or gate erected across a road. The more modern type of reformer goes gaily up to it and says, I don't see the use of this, let's clear it away. To which the more intelligent type of reformer will do well to answer, If you don't see the use of it, I certainly wouldn't let you clear it away. Go away and think. Then, when you can come back and tell me that you do see the use of it, I may allow you to destroy it. The Family Law Act 1975, introduced by the Whitlam government, was born from the contraceptive pill. The fears at the time that this legislation were that the Family Law Act would destroy the family. The feminist led the charge on that. They mocked the suggestion that the family law would destroy the family. They said it was that non-existent thing, the patriarchy, that was trying to rob women of their freedom. Now, nearly 50 years on, we can see how that worked out. The Whitlam government had pulled down the 4,000-year-old marriage gate and revolutionised it. Did they know what they were pulling down and what that gate did? And... Where was that going to leave the children, who this series of programs is all about? The old Divorce Act in Australia was known as the Matrimonial Causes Act. 
it provided limited grounds of divorce. After all, the Marriage Act 1961 in Section 5 defined marriage as marriage means the union of a man and a woman to the exclusion of all others voluntarily entered into for life. This was basically the Judeo-Christian tradition of marriage enshrined in the legislation whose roots went back 4,000 years to the time of Moses. This comes right at the beginning of the Bible, the very first book in Genesis 2.24. That is why man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. A marriage between Christians is a holy thing, representing the most important aspects of their faith, to last for the lives of the couple until one of them dies. The husband and wife become one flesh through a Christian marriage ceremony. It's a real spiritual commitment. That real commitment is a socially significant thing. But even a secular marriage has many of the same qualities. But when Gough Whitlam became the Labor Prime Minister of Australia in 1972, there was a successful push, led by him, to replace Australia's first uniform divorce law, the 1959 Matrimonial Causes Act. Until that act became law, the divorce laws in Australia were made by the states. That wasn't a great way to handle that important issue with people living in different states and moving around the country. Gough Whitlam's proposed new, more modern form of divorce would empower women particularly. But did it? There were certainly problems with the Matrimonial Causes Act and how it worked in some cases. But not many marriages ended in divorce and most couples did live with each other for life. So when you look at cases where divorce was sought, you're looking at what, at the time, was a tiny minority of marriages. In the book Women and Whitlam, Camilla Nelson, Associate Professor at the University of Notre Dame, wrote about one shocking example of how the old divorce laws worked. She said this, Before the Barwick Act, each state had taken a different approach to family violence, with some barely recognising cruelty at all. The Barwick Act made a small concession to shifting social attitudes to women by admitting the traditional legal requirement for a woman to produce corroborated evidence of frequent assaults and cruel beatings, that is, repeated grave physical injuries, across a 12-month period. The requirement that a wife must endure 12 months of habitual cruelty to be eligible for a divorce was eventually tested in the High Court in 1968, in the case known as Tilney, appealed from the full court of the Supreme Court of Queensland. The High Court found that although the conduct of the husband met the exacting test of danger to life, limb and health, that that legal precedent apparently required, the wife was still not eligible for a divorce because the danger had only been sustained for a period of seven months at the most. There was clearly room for improvement in the divorce laws, but Louise Perry reminds us of G.K. Chesterton's story about not pulling down gates that don't seem to be serving any purpose before you know why they're there. The key point of Whitlam's Family Law Act was no-fault divorce. Separate for a year, and then you could get a divorce. That was 
a long way from the definition of marriage in Christian teachings and in the Marriage Act itself, which required that marriage was something entered into for life. Even with homosexual marriages, that part of the definition still stands. That definition is totally incompatible with being able to get a divorce after 12 months separation, just because a party wants to get out of the marriage. That wasn't mending the gate, it was completely tearing it down. Marriage, a union for life as the Marriage Act says, although now out of step with the Family Law Act, on that basis is a little like entering into a 100-year lease. That often happens with what are called crown leases. Often the intention of such a lease is to encourage the person taking the lease to put up, say, a hall for public use. At the end of the lease, the land goes back to the crown along with the hall. The community benefits and the person who built the hall got the use out of it, made their money with profit back. Everyone's happy. In a marriage entered into for life, there are a lot of commitments that people make based on that sort of expectation. Even many marriages today are entered into with the commitment to a lifelong relationship. Although the Family Law Act encourages people to look at marriage as disposable. The Act, I think, makes it clear that marriage has a shelf life, a use-by date. And uh, you can discard it easily if you've changed or whatever other excuse you make up so you don't feel as if you're the one to blame for your marriage being terminated. The one thing that is perhaps the least thought about in connection with marriage is the children of the marriage. There's one commitment that should cause married couples to give serious thought to not divorcing, although there are some circumstances where that is very necessary. The view, if I'm happy, my children will be happy, just isn't true. Melissa Michella, in her paper, The Rights of Children, Biology Matters, wrote, Biological parents have a strictly non-transferable obligation to love their children themselves, an obligation that is weighty, given the unique closeness of the parent-child biological relationship and the importance of this being for the well-being of the child. Further, in order to love their children adequately, biological parents must raise those children themselves, except in the case of genuine incompetence. These obligations on the part of parents correlate to children's absolute right to be loved by their biological parents and to children's strong prima facie right to be raised by their biological parents. Author Camilla Nelson mocks the sort of reaction that people at the time had to what no-fault divorce would mean for the family. The children and the man and the woman in the marriage. She said, The Family Law Act brought about a decisive shift in thinking about the institution of the family and the role that men and women play in maintaining or disrupting it. The impact can be read off the pages of newspapers and magazines from one decade to the next. In 1971, for example, the Women's Weekly ran a story under the headline Advice for the Woman on the Verge of, followed by the word divorce in a large black font, struck through with a seismic crack. In the article, the best-selling women's magazine advised its readers to think again and again 
before embarking on a course of action that, according to the writer at least, would certainly result in barren bitterness and emotionally crippled children. How can a divorced woman cope with loneliness and the sense of failure? How can she cope with the guilt? These reforms were part of the swinging 60s, where all of the old gates were being torn down, like we do with statues today, again, not knowing why we're doing it, almost universally and completely with no thought about why the gate was there. Many people complained that changing the divorce law so radically would destroy the family and ruin the lives of children who were caught up in divorce. The most remarkable thing about Camilla Nelson's comments that she wrote in 2023, as if that wasn't what happened. But all of the grim predictions about what would happen because of the new divorce laws, coupled with what the contraceptive pill unleashed in changed social habits, meant that the grim predictions that she still mocks today weren't grim enough. The whole debate over divorce is interesting when you look at the Marxist concept which rejects marriage entirely and has always rejected the family and the parents bringing up their children. Although Karl Marx is known as the inventor of communism, he's not. It goes back to Plato's idea in his book The Republic, written in 375 BC. His ideas are still the basis of Marxism. World-famous mathematician and critic of socialism, Igor Shafarevich, who lived through Stalin's regime, quite an accomplishment, wrote a book in the 1970s called The Socialist Phenomenon. He read Plato's book and exposed the strange ideas that the Marxists still cling to today, and that the Marxists in Gough Whitlam's Labour Party in the 1970s believed, and their successors today still believe. Shafarevich quoted, as well as summarising in places, what Plato had to say. These women shall all be common to all these men, and that none shall cohabit with any privately, and that the children shall be common, and that no parents shall know its own offspring, nor any child its parents. Marriage is replaced by a temporary union of sexes, for purely physiological satisfaction and propagation of the species. As could be expected, the education of children is in the hands of the state. The children will be taken over by the officials appointed for this. The parents ought not know their children, conducting the mothers to the pen when their breasts are full, but employing every device to prevent anyone from recognizing their own infant. As to the question how parents and children shall recognize one another, the answer is as follows. They won't, except that a man will call all male offsprings born between the seventh and the tenth month after he became a bridegroom his sons and all female daughters, and they will call him father. Sadly, many of these things are what is happening today. Childcare is increasingly removing the parents, especially the mother, from her children. And with divorces, living together and frequently changing partners, children might experience difficulties at least recognising their father. The children will often blame either the father or the mother because their father is not there for them. Nearly 65 years on from the changes brought about by what is called the Sexual Revolution and the Family Law Act, 
sociologists have had plenty of time to research our society. It turns out that before we removed the gates, we should have found out why they were there. So now, decades later, we know. And the results are terrible. So let's take it as a given that since the Family Law Act and the pill, the number of people getting married has declined dramatically. The number of divorces that happen have gone up significantly, and the pill has had a major impact. Almost universally, all of these things have been bad for women, but good for men, very good for men. If there was such a thing as the patriarchy, some evil Bond-style supervillainous group of men controlling the world to exploit women, they would never have had the balls to do what the feminists did to themselves and their sisters. I'll explain later what happened and why, but let's look at the big picture consequences of these feminist-inspired revolutions. The second sexual revolution, or perhaps it might better be called the counter-revolution. In 2008, the Institute of American Values conducted the only study to date to estimate the cost of family breakdown to the United States. It found that children living apart from one or both parents cost taxpayers roughly $112 billion every year. This includes money spent on anti-poverty programs, criminal justice and educational programs. It also takes into consideration a decrease in tax revenue because fatherless children on average achieve lesser academic and vocational success, which results in lower adulthood earnings. When the family breaks down, the state becomes the mother and the father as the ineffective and expensive replacement parents of the children of the marriage. The state offers financial help through welfare programs that children from intact homes seldom need. Single working mothers need government-funded daycare and the demand for homeless shelters outstrips the ability of the state to build them. The police also often become the father figure for the fatherless children, usually the boys who commit crimes. Children from broken homes are emotionally starved, and as students, they're disproportionately diagnosed with behavioural issues, increasing the demands on teachers and school counsellors. Here are just a few examples of government spending in America, basically the same in Australia, intended to address some of these children's most pressing social issues, and failing miserably. Education. When the first generation born of the sexual revolution in America began attending school in 1970, the government spent just $1,000 per kindergarten to year 12 student each year. Adjusted for inflation, that number would be about $5,000 today. Although enrolments in schools has only slightly increased, Today's schools receive nearly triple that amount, $14,000 per student. Despite this massive increase in funds, current graduation rates in America are only slightly above the rates in 1970, a miserable return for the taxpayer's investment. Prisons. A massive spike in rates of imprisonment began in 1970, coinciding with the sexual revolution. This was the first major increase in 50 years. 
The National Research Council explains, in 1972, 161 U.S. residents were in prisons per 100,000 population. By 2007, that rate had more than quadrupled to a peak of 767 per 100,000. In absolute numbers, the prison population had grown to 2.23 million people, yielding a rate of imprisonment that was by far the highest in the world. It cost the U.S. government about $80 billion annually to house one quarter of the prisoners in the world, a cost which has increased at triple the rate of spending on education. Welfare. Even before the year 2000, Isabel Saul, a senior fellow at the Brookings Institute, reported that the growth of single-parent families can account for virtually all of the increase in child poverty since 1970. According to the Congressional Budget Office, welfare caseloads would have declined considerably throughout most of the 1980s if it had not been for the fact that the growth of single-parent families continued to push them upwards. This downward spiral has only continued as out-of-wedlock births have increased in the past 20 years. As a result, welfare benefits have soared. According to the Heritage Fund, after adjusting for inflation, means-tested spending on cash, food and housing programs rose nearly tenfold over the period from $36.4 billion in 1964 to $351 billion in 2016. In constant 2016 dollars, per person spending on cash, food and housing rose nearly sixfold from $190 in 1964 to $1,098 per person in 2016. Has this monumental spending helped impoverished broken families or the children? No, it hasn't. In 1967, about 27% of Americans lived in poverty, in 2012, the percentage had risen to about 29%. So despite massive increases in spending, there's been no change in graduation rates, the prison population has increased fourfold, and the percentage of Americans living in poverty is basically unchanged. In other words, an epic fail. It appears when it comes to social crises, money isn't the problem, and massive government spending isn't the solution. So what could be the explanation for failing students, swelling prison populations and generational poverty? Could the eightfold increase in fatherless children over the past 60 years be at the root of the problem? Another study has found that the proportion of births to unmarried women has increased greatly in recent decades, rising from 5% in 1960 to 32% in 1995. After some stability in the mid-1990s, there was a gradual rise from 1997 through 2008 from 32 to 41%. The rate appears to have stabilised again and was at 40% in 2014. So the publication Births to Unmarried Women, Child Trends, December 2015, tells us. Kay Faust, in her book Them Before Us, says that government spending fails because the state can't love a child. 
That's what mums and dads are for, and marriage is a child's best shot at being raised by both, for at least the years they're dependent children. In order to reduce massive public welfare spending, which every tax-paying Australian has to pay, the states need to encourage families to stick together. The best way to do that is to encourage marriage. Dealing with the terrible problem of how the old divorce laws treated women living with violent husbands could have been done by just amending a few sections without basically destroying the institution of marriage. The feminists have also scored another major own goal from these problems caused by default-free divorce and the way that the contraceptive pill has been used. That has crippled many women. The contraceptive pill was seen as liberating women from their biological function of having children. Thanks to the contraceptive pill, that didn't have to happen any longer. Only that's a lie. The contraceptive pill is about 90% effective for normal users. That's 10% of users fall pregnant while on the pill. 50% of abortions in the United States are for women on the pill. Since 1973 in the States, there have been 63 million abortions, so about 31.5 million for women on the pill. So the pill, like the COVID vaccination, is a massive failure that has nonetheless had a massive impact on our society. More about that in another program. American Timothy Reichert, using the tools of econometrics, wrote this analysis of the sexual revolution. His piece was called Bitter Pill, and it was published in the journal First Things. Mining data from the 1960s onward, Reichert deduced that the contraceptive revolution has resulted in a massive redistribution of wealth and power from women and children to men. More technically, artificial contraception sets up what economists call a prisoner's dilemma game, in which each woman is induced to make decisions rationally that ultimately make her and all women worse off. How? Well, a lot of women are no longer thinking of marriage, partly because there aren't enough men who see the need any longer to get married. The best a lot of women can hope for is living together with someone, a relationship where both parties say that they will stay together until someone better comes along or they get bored with their partner. The pill and abortions mean that men don't need to consider the option that marriage used to be, of finding a woman to live with and to have sex with. This has resulted in a new phenomenon, or perhaps more accurately, a very old phenomenon. Many men don't settle down, marry and start families. Women can't refuse to have sex available to men on the grounds that they might get pregnant. Either the pill will prevent that, or if they do get pregnant, they can have an abortion. If a pregnant woman chooses not to have an abortion, the man can give her Dave Chappelle's response, which he joked about, but which is real. Not only do I believe they have the right to choose, I believe that they shouldn't have to consult anybody except for a physician about how they exercise that right. Gentlemen, that is fair. And ladies, to be fair to us, I also believe if you decide to have the baby, a man should not have to pay. That's fair. 
If you can kill this motherfucker, I can at least abandon him. It's my money, my choice. The sexual revolution of the 1960s and the easy divorce laws gave some old words new meanings. The phrase Peter Pan syndrome was coined in the 1980s for men who never need to commit because they can get all the sex from women they want with nothing in return. It's why menalescent became a noun in the Urban Dictionary. Men don't need to go through the process of building themselves up financially and to mature. For when they meet that special girl and want to get married, then have children and guide those children through to adulthood. They just never need to reach that stage of their lives anymore. Men want sex. The way to get that used to be through marriage commitment. That was what came with the first sexual revolution way back. That revolution empowered women and gave them what they wanted out of a relationship. Maybe not everything they wanted, but as Mick Jagger famously reminds us... The second sexual revolution of the 60s, if you can call it a revolution, maybe better called a counter-revolution, turned the clock back to the way things used to be before the first sexual revolution, with men getting the sex they wanted without having to commit. For what many men, the feeling is, thank you, feminism. This is what I always wanted, and you gave it to me. These new words, Peter Pan syndrome, menalescence, means far less incentives for men to marry. The sexual marketplace is flooded with potential partners. Cheap sex, as Regeneris' title has it. Again, Dave Chappelle sums it up nicely. If pussy was a stock, it would be plummeting right now because you flooded the market with it. You're giving it away too easy. That outcome wasn't the one that the people who cheered on the sexual revolution in the 60s saw. Even today in Women and Whitlam, the radical feminist contributors cheer on this sexual revolution. Go figure. It's not only all women that are worse off, although the Marxist feminists who wanted to end marriage are obviously happy about it. It's also children affected by those bad decisions that women and men make avoiding committed relationships. In the next program, I'm going to look more closely at the price children have paid from the sexual revolution and the easy divorce laws. Thanks for listening into this program, CYKIAE. If you missed it, you can catch up with it as a podcast on my CYKIAE, Spotify, Apple, Google, and many other podcast sites. Just look at my program details on Cairns FM 89.1 for clickable links. I'm Paul. Don't miss my next program because you're going to love it. I want to thank my ghostwriter, without whom this program would definitely not have been possible, the Holy Spirit. Maybe you could catch up with me at my church, the Gafcon Northern Hope Anglican Church at the Cairns and District Junior Estedford Hall, 67 Greenslopes Street, Edge Hill, some Sunday at 9am. If you liked this program, you should definitely listen in to my other explosive program, The Danger Zone, also available as a podcast on those same sites. Search Danger Zone, bracket, DZ, close brackets.